you will, open your Bibles uh, back to the Gospel of Luke chapter 7. We're going to continue in uh, the passage that Josh uh, read for us earlier. earlier. We're going to pick up in verse 18. Again, the Gospel of Luke chapter 7, beginning in verse 18, we'll go through the end of that chapter. Several times in the course of our uh, exposition of Luke, and even in in other uh, times when we've been preaching through books, of the Bible, I'll often make the remark that it's hard to know how much of a text or how far you should go uh, with a text. How many chapters should you include or how many verses should you include in, in a sermon? Um, I was thinking th- this morning and very famously uh, the British uh, preacher of the last century, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, preached 232 summons from the book of Ephesians. That's six chapters, folks, 232 uh, sermons from there, 366 from the little old book of Romans. Uh, Now, uh, he was a man of great spiritual insight and keen intellect, and so I'll leave leave the comparison uh, up to you, Uh, but... uh, There is the idea of pacing ourselves through a book. And there's also the understanding that the narrative does go together. That the the authors of the Bible are putting together a story to make a particular point. So the pieces fit together. So sometimes you do like we've been doing and uh, preaching four or five sermons out of about 20 verses of Luke uh, from the Sermon on the Mount. And today we pick up the pace and we're going to uh, try to uh, survey about 35 verses. And I was very, very tempted to go all the way down to verse 3 of chapter 8 simply because I believe that these episodes, or if you want to use the, the big fancy scholarly word, the pericopes that uh, are a part of these chapters, these episodes that kind of stand together and tell a, tell a story I believe they serve as a, a, a fitting transition from the instruction of the Sermon on the Mount and the explanation that I think is so vitally important to our understanding of the world, the church, the gospel, and evangelism uh, when Jesus unpacks what we know as the parable of the soils or the parable of the sower. And so uh, uh, we want to... Uh, uh, to look at this and, and see how Luke has, has uh, structured his presentation uh, so that uh, we may know with, with great certainty that which we have been taught, that Jesus is the Christ of God. He is uniquely the Savior who has entered our world so that our sins will be forgiven and so that we may have the hope of heaven. So begin reading with me in verse 18 this morning, the disciples of John reported all these things to him, and John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many on whom were blind he bestowed sight. 
And he answered them, Go tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised. The poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out to see in go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing, living luxury, or in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written. Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. When all the people heard this, the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation, and what are they like? They are like children sitting in a marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine and you say he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. Pray with me if you will. Father... We thank you for your word. We thank you for the orderly, systematic, understandable way it reveals to us the truth regarding our condition before a holy God and our hope because of a Savior sent into the world to die on the cross for our sins. Lord, may we know your truth. May it be applied uh, to our lives. May your Son be glorified in all things. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As we transition from Jesus' instruction into uh, these episodes, these uh, brief encounters uh, that Luke puts together uh, for the purpose of proving with the greatest of certainty that Jesus is exactly who he has said he is and exactly who Luke is presenting uh, him to be. And so uh, as we look at this, we want to understand that he is stringing pearls together. They're not just uh, disconnected episodes, but but they go together to, to... to show us that, that indeed uh, Jesus is a Savior of all men, that He saves even the most unlikely who have faith, namely a, a Gentile uh, centurion, that He demonstrates uh, an unrivaled sense of power, even on one who is dead and unable to exercise any faith by which He would receive a miracle. And then maybe... A word for us today, as I listened to a a friend's uh, sermon this week, a young man that's just entering uh, the ministry, he 
like myself, went to seminary at 37 years old. He's just now completing his studies and uh, getting his feet wet, so to speak, in, in the pulpit. But as he introduced his sermon, he talked about we are fatigued. And I thought, what a good description. Uh, I don't know anyone that's not fatigued by the moment we find ourselves in. And so how is that affecting us and our understanding of what God is doing in our world? Well, seemingly, as John the Baptist came to the end of his life, the one that was the greatest among those born of women, he was fatigued. And we find maybe even some unexpected doubt or at least some unexpected, unexpected questioning. Uh, coming from the lips of John the Baptist. So let's look at this. First of all, the centurion and, and his servant. Many times I've mentioned that in my uh, uh, journalistic training, uh, as you all uh, well know, I was a photographer on the school paper for uh, all four years that I was in high school, but I had to learn how to write a newspaper article. And I, I wrote one, won a state award, and never wrote another one. And so uh, at, at any rate... Uh, uh, in journalism, they speak of the five W's and an H. Who, what, when, where, why, and how. And I think Luke, in presenting these episodes, he does a very good job. You can apply that little uh, lens to these and, and see that he, he very quickly tells us who he's talking about and uh, what's going on in, in the narrative and where, where they are and what's, what they're doing and how it all unfolds. So he, he really does a very good job. He's a very precise and concise writer. In fact, many think he had some, some training as an historian. Uh, he's often remembered as Dr. Luke, but he's obviously a very educated man, and he is uh, presenting an argument in a very logical, in a very well-planned-out way. And so the centurion and the servant we see, first of all, in, in verses 1 and 2, his problem, okay, after Jesus had completed uh, this sermon, he enters one of the villages of Galilee known as Capernaum, and there is a centurion, we are told, uh, that has a servant, some translations would even say a slave who was sick at the point of death. Uh, centurions feet, uh, uh, appear fairly regularly in the course of the Scripture, and typically... They're seen in a fairly positive light. They're seen as men of, of, of character. Uh, certainly, uh, Roman centurions did not necessarily, uh, were not necessarily Romans. They were just, they, but they were Gentiles, and uh, they were very, very well paid. Uh, where the daily wage for a laborer was a denarius, which would be about two, 250 denarii a year. Uh, a Roman centurion might make up to 7,500 denarii a year. And so they were well regarded and they were well compensated. They, they were brave. Uh, they, were, they were tough. Uh, they were there uh, to act as uh, the representatives of, of Caesar. Uh, they were there at times to act as a bit of a police force. And uh, uh, they, they were there to uh, make sure that the interest of Caesar were best served by all of the goings-on of the population there uh, in Galilee. And so this centurion has this servant, and he's described as highly valued. Now, 
the commentators kind of divide up. Was the centurion simply interested in this servant because he was a valuable piece of property? That's a possible interpretation. But another idea that that wouldn't betray the meaning of the word used here is that the centurion esteemed, he, he held this man dear to him, okay? And I, most of the commentators seem to think that that's what's in view here, that, that this centurion cared very deeply about this man that was in uh, his charge. And so this centurion it makes a request. Look there in verse 3. He asked the elders of the Jews to approach Jesus in regards to addressing the problem of his servant. Now, Jews and Gentiles don't have anything to do with each other. Uh, but yet, this man was highly thought of enough within the community that these Jewish leaders were willing to approach Jesus about the matter that concerned the centurion. And so these men go to Jesus, verse 4, they plead with Jesus and they describe the centurion as worthy to have you do this for us. He loves our nation and he's the one who built our synagogue. Now, what did I say a minute ago? Centurions usually were men of what? Of a certain means. And whether... This man had become a proselyte, a Gentile that had converted and become a worshiper of the true God, or whether he was just interested and admired the, the, the high ethical norms of Judaism, or where it was all about politics, where you just give them what they want. You know, you, to keep them quiet and keep, keep them from uh, having a rebellion. If they want a synagogue, I'll build them a synagogue. If that keeps them quiet. If that, if that protects Caesar's interest, then that's what I will do for them. But given the kind of the way these Jews speak of him, I think he's either a, a true proselyte or he's one that at least is looking with great interest at the issues of Judaism. And so, when Jesus hears of the man, Jesus is prepared to respond to him, to, to meet this man's request, or to answer his quest. Look at verse 6. Jesus is going to the man's house to address the issue of the sick servant, and then the centurion sends friends out to meet Jesus. And notice what he says to Jesus. Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Now, one thing that you, you tend to see in military men and in policemen is, is I'm going to at least, for the, for the most part, an appropriate boldness, an appropriate uh, concept of who I, who I am, I, I'm important, I'm significant, and I, I do something that, that should be valued. Well, this man expresses great humility. I've heard about you, Jesus. I, I, I'm, I'm intrigued. I, I obviously believe 
that, that, that you can do that which I uh, request of you. And at the end of the day, I'm not worthy. Whether because simply I'm a Gentile, whether or not he's come to an understanding of his own sinfulness, that I am not worthy to, to have you uh, to come under my roof. Now, what a tragic story this would have been if it ends there. And, 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 it, and it's, it's like in, in, in salvation. It's not enough to just come to the point and say, well, I, I'm, I'm such a terrible person, I'm a sinner, I know that I am, I know I deserve hell, I know I deserve judgment. Well, that, that's a good thing to know. But if that's all you know, your life ends in tragedy. You must know that there is a Savior who can remedy even the deepest sense and reality of sinfulness. And so, verse 7, Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. Now, so Jesus, I've got enough confidence in you, I've heard enough about you that you don't have to show up. You don't have to be right pro, uh, proximate to what, where the, the, the circumstances that, that require your attention are. All you've got to do, even from a distance, you speak, my servant will be healed. And because, see, I've taken my life circumstances, and as I've thought about you, and I've, I'm, I'm, I believe what's going on is he is believing that Jesus is uniquely sent by this God that he had been learning about in the Jewish religion. That, that, that he's understanding something very significant about Jesus that's analogous to his own experience in that, that he, as a soldier, is under authority. That he is representing a greater authority than himself and, as he, and since he is a representative, he can call upon that power, he can use that power, he can represent that power to accomplish things within the realm under his authority. Okay? As a representative, as a legitimate representative of greater authority, he can exercise the authority that is delegated to him. But he's not only under authority, we're told that he understands he has authority. That is, he doesn't have to personally represent Caesar. He can actually delegate someone under his command to you go do that which I'm telling you is in the best interest of Caesar. You go carry out that which I've charged you to carry out. And so he sees Jesus in a similar fashion, that you are representing someone else Namely, you're representing the Heavenly Father and that you're under His authority, but you also have authority. And you have authority to act in this realm characterized by what? By sickness and death and affliction. That, 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 I, that, that my life situation has informed me correctly in terms of who you are, and what you can do. Now, look at verse 9. I think there's only a couple of times in the Bible that Jesus is described as being astonished or marveling. Now, remember, what's Jesus been doing? 
He's been preaching all around Galilee. He's just pre- finished the Sermon on the Mount. And, and maybe, maybe sometimes Jesus feels like I do. When I tell you, let me tell you something. God has sent his son into the world. He has died on the cross for your sins. If you trust in him as your Lord and Savior, your sins are forgiven, and you have the certainty of a home in heaven. And all God's people were jumping up and down, and they were celebrating because that's the greatest thing they've ever heard. Amen. Cool stuff. Raw. Jesus has been preaching to those who should have been expecting him, should have recognized him when he showed up, should have responded very quickly to this is the one that's been promised to us for hundreds of years. But where does he find faith? In the most unexpected place. In the heart of a Gentile centurion, a man that you would think had been hardened by, by the realities of a lifetime spent uh, at war and, and, and dealing with rebellion and dealing with difficult people. But this man recognized Jesus for who he is, and Jesus marveled, and he says, this is unique, this is special, this is astonishing. I I came to Israel and they should have recognized me and they should have had the same kind of faith that this man had, but I haven't seen anything like this in Israel. But I see it in this Gentile. And certainly what does that do? It gives us a little glimpse. And See, I know you all know your Bible, right? You know your Bible. The gospel is going to go beyond the borders of, of Palestine, right? The gospel is going to really impact more Gentiles, ultimately, than it, than it does Jews. When we speak of the numbers, that the gospel is going to be a worldwide phenomenon. And so, verse 10, guess what? Shock of shocks. Shock of shocks. When that delegation that had represented the centurion, they had gone to Jesus, Jesus, here's, here's, what, here's what the centurion said. Here's an expression of both his humility and his faith. Guess what? That servant was what? He was healed. He was healed. Now, again, what, what does that do? What, how does it suit Luke's purposes? We're, again, we're going to see in just a minute specifically, but we understand what? That Jesus has the authority. Jesus has the power to to reverse the course of sickness and disease and 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 that he does respond to those who seek him out he does respond to those who have believed because of what because of the report that they had heard presumably the the centurion had not met Jesus personally I guess it's possible he could have but he sins to Jesus based on what he had heard. And so, number one there, the the centurion and his servant. The second episode, the widow and her son. Now again, when? Soon, soon afterward. There's the journalist again. When did this happen? Well, these things are happening pretty quickly uh, together. Uh, Jesus leaves Capernaum, 
goes to a town called Nain, wide place in the road, Lyerly, Georgia, Menlo, Georgia. Google them, you'll see them right there. Stop. Lyerly doesn't even have a stop sign on the main road. Menlo does. But just, just a little burg out of the way, okay? But Jesus goes there. And as he approaches the probably village, wide place, crossroads, uh, they evidently had something that was something of a, of a gate. Again, what happens at the gate of a city? Typically, that was the local courthouse where matters are adjudicated. So, goes there, and as he arrives there, he notices that there was a man who had died who was being carried out. And Luke tells us what? The only son of his mother, and she was a widow. So she would have been included in the most destitute of the destitute. She has lost her husband, now she has lost her son. She is the most heartbroken of all people. I, I, I've often remarked, and uh, it, I have lost parents, and I have lost a wife. And those things hurt deeply, trust me. But I cannot imagine a deeper hurt than the loss of a child. I don't know. I think still that's got to cut the deepest. And so she, she is helpless. She is hurting. Lost a husband. She's lost a son. Uh, the, the, the funeral is, being, is, is ongoing. Uh, there's a crowd that has gathered around her. Verse 13 says what? The Lord saw her. He has compassion. He's deeply moved. And that, that compassion is this idea deep within him in his bowels, so to speak, in the biblical language. He, deep, he is deeply moved. If you remember when he approached the tomb of Lazarus, that, that short verse that everybody wants to quote when they're called upon to uh, quote a Bible verse, right? Jesus wept. Okay, there, there's my memory verse for the week, okay? He's deeply moved by the realities of life in a fallen world. How, how the sorrows of this world create circumstances for life that, that, that are absolutely painful and, and debilitating and, and troubling and, 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 and make, make just, just having a livelihood, having a place to, to live and food to eat makes it so incredibly di difficult. Now, Again, we kind of know the story. If we didn't know the story, when we see those last three words of verse 13, we could think, Jesus, you're the most heartless man that's ever walked on the face of the earth. You're the most heart. Don't cry. Don't cry. I have just been left destitute, Jesus. Don't tell me not to cry. This is heart-rending and heartbreaking. But we do know the story because Jesus is going to remedy that which has provoked the weeping, namely the loss of the child. Now, certainly goes beyond the text and it does no good. Why didn't he bring, give her her husband back too? Why, why didn't he go to every funeral and stop the weeping at every funeral? How, how many times have I told you how much I have come to hate funerals? 
for all that they mean, all of the loss that's going on, the realities of life in a fallen world. The, not, it's not just the funeral. That's just the beginning. See, if you're not, if you're not intimate with the person that died, you think of the funeral as the end. Folks, the funeral is the beginning of life without. Okay? We forget that sometimes if we're not right in the, the grip of, of that loss. And so, how I wish, I've never, certainly as a pastor, ever been to a funeral that I do not wish I could raise that person from the dead. That I could end the suffering of those who are intimate with the loss. That I could not say, get out of that casket right now. And let's end this foolishness. Let's get back about the business of being a family. But Jesus has not delegated that power to us for this day. We cannot say, don't weep. We will weep in this life. But because of this little episode, this pericope, this glimpse, we see the very power that shall one day be the norm for the age demonstrated. Now, to be sure, this man was not really resurrected. He was resuscitated. There's a difference. I mean, a friend, as far as we can tell, I mean, in that what? He got old, and one day they carried him out on the funeral bier, the plank of wood. He was wrapped up in a shroud of some type, all the anointing oil and everything. He was carried out by his friends to a place to be buried, and Jesus didn't intervene that time. But here's the thing, our prayer would be what? That he didn't know Jesus is just the one that brought him back from the dead, that he knew the Jesus that was the Savior of the world, and that while he's still resting in that grave right now, that one day he will once again hear the voice of Jesus, and he will step forth out of that grave, as will all who know our Lord Jesus Christ. So it's, it's, it is a, a glimpse that anticipates even a better reality. In fact, this guy and Lazarus and, and Jairus' daughter, they may have spent the rest of their life being mad at Jesus. Why? Why? Why did you bring me back to this mess? I saw the glory of heaven. I saw the splendor. I, I was set free from the sorrows that are simply a part of life in this world. And you brought me back to this. Yeah. Uh, I think life is good. I really do. I value life. I'm appreciative to that which God has given me. But there are times when my soul is deeply troubled that I do think about those that have gone ahead and I think in so such a very real way they are blessed their suffering has ended ours has continued and it will continue you've often heard me say this 
Every relationship is headed for tragedy. Every single relationship is headed for tragedy. Whoever you're in a relationship with, husband or wife, child, grandchildren. I, I, it's obvious I, I kind of enjoy being grandpa. It's a, it's a really good gig. And, 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 and to see these kids light up when they hear my voice or see me or hear that I'm, I'm coming. But if the normal order of things hold, one day they will stand brokenhearted by my grave. And I hope that they will think, and boy, our Paul, Paul poured his life into us. Our Paul, Paul, he did for us. He played with us. He took us places. He, he sung about Jesus with us. He taught us about Jesus. He showed us what the life of Jesus is. But one day, one day, we will all grieve or somebody will grieve over us. That's the reality. How I wish sometimes I could just walk up to every widow, to every orphan and say, don't weep, I've got a plan here. I'm, I'm going I'm to raise your loved one. Life is going to continue. Life is going to be restored. How I wish... But that wouldn't resolve the overarching difficulties of the age, would it? And it wouldn't stop the reality that there would be a second go-around for that individual. And so, there in verse 15, or verse 14, Jesus speaks to him. And as, I, as I've said so many times in the case of Lazarus, I believe this is a picture of salvation. That in one moment, you're dead, this man could not hear the mourners. He couldn't hear the voice of his mother weeping. But when the voice of the Lord Jesus Christ spoke directly to him, according to the power of God, that which was dead became alive, and the alive person did what live people do. He didn't lay there on the funeral bier. He got up, and he went about his business. He demonstrated that he was alive. And that's what happens when God gives you spiritual life. When you finally and ultimately hear the very voice of Jesus Christ saying, Arise, come forth, and follow me. That's what you do. In one moment you cannot hear the voice of God because you're dead, and in the next voice you can because you're alive. And this man didn't contribute faith. He didn't contribute nothing. God supplied it all. That's salvation. That is a picture of God saving an individual. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. Jesus gave him to his mother. And fear seized them all. And they glorified God, saying, wasn't that cool? It seems like, it really does, it seems like their response was very underwhelming. It's a great prophet. Jesus is a great prophet. Not that the Son of God, the Savior of the world, has entered this world for our salvation. A great prophet. A great prophet is here. Now what have I told you over and over again? Jesus told him, said, even though the dead have risen, will rise, you won't believe. You won't believe. It, miracles don't convert. Spirit of God converts. All right, let's look at this final episode very quickly. 
the prophet and his questions, verses beginning in verse 18. Here we find John the Baptist. He has been put in prison. Herod has put him there, and he is about to be beheaded uh, because of, of Herod's lustful heart, observing his stepdaughter dancing. He is so moved, he says, anything that you ask of me, I will do. And she comes up with the idea, I'll have the head of John the Baptist. And so John the Baptist is about to die. And so while he is in prison, having proclaimed, behold, the Lamb of God, it takes away the sin of the world, the, the one who saw the sign, behold, the one upon whom the Spirit descends as a dove, that's, that's the one, that's the one I promised. That guy that saw and heard those things, he's sitting there in, in prison, and he begins to think. Was Jesus really the right one? Are you, are, you the, are you really the one? See, he, he had a problem of, 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 of the, the, he didn't have a complete revelation. He hadn't fully grasped everything the promised Messiah was be, would be. He, he hadn't understood the, the concept of the suffering servant. And, and, and so he thought, I, I have identified him and I, I, have, I have promoted him. And so certainly uh, I'm going to be included in, in the greatness of the kingdom. I'm going to enjoy the blessings of the kingdom. And here I am rotting away in prison. Sometimes our circumstances press upon us to the place that we do what? We have some real serious questions. And so... John asks, he sends his delegation. Well, it's basically kind of a two-part question. Are you the one, or do we look for someone else? And Jesus' answer is simply this. If you understood the Old Testament Scriptures, you will realize I'm doing just what they said the Messiah would do. There, I am demonstrating God's power over disease and plagues and spirits. I've, I've restored, bestowed sight to the blind. Now you go... And you tell John what you've seen. And then Jesus says, if John doesn't quit on me. That is, if you're not offended by the fact that the kingdom and its king doesn't look exactly like you think the kingdom and king ought to look, then you are indeed blessed because you get it. If you're not disappointed in me, you're blessed. You're blessed. And so... They left, and then Jesus begins to speak about John. What did, what did you go out through the desert to see? Just a, 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 the weeds, a reed, just kind of flopping in the wind. No, I wasn't. John didn't vacillate. Repent, you brood of vipers. Repent. There, he didn't shilly-shally around. He spoke the truth. Did you go out and see somebody all dressed up and all fancied up? No, that wasn't John. No, those kind of guys, they're, they're with the positions of power. John was out in the desert. He was living away from every, everyone else. Well, what did you go see? You went to see a prophet. You went to hear one that would speak for God. And this John is the one that has been designated as my forerunner, the one that's going before me. And there's been no one greater. But let me tell you this, as great as John is, those that are citizens of my kingdom, the lowliest of those in my kingdom, they're greater than he is. 
the privileges, the power that go along with that which I'm accomplishing through my body, through my blood, that which is theirs is far greater than anything that John could ever know. Because what? He belongs to an older covenant. He, 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 oh, he, he belongs to that which is incomplete. You're going to belong to that which is complete. And so, people heard. There were those that believed Jesus and believed the testimony about John, except for that group we could expect, the Pharisees and the lawyers. They again rejected John. And so Jesus sums it up in verse 31, 31 through 35. He said, I want to kind of illustrate how the people of this generation are. I loved it. Timely thing. Our, our esteemed chairman of deacons was in my office uh, one day this week, Wednesday or Thursday. And we got to talk about our old friend, the late Danny Kincaid. And Danny always called Brad... I never heard him call him anything else but Brat. And I assumed that was just something for my benefit. But Brad tells me that's all he's ever called him. His entire life, he's always been Brat Aldridge. I'm not, and I have no comment to that, okay? No, no comment. But when I looked at John MacArthur's commentary on this section, he describes Jesus as speaking about spiritual brats. Spiritual brats. These people that, of that society that are acting like children. And he describes them as those in the marketplace that are playing games. And evidently, children played these games where they mimic the adults. Whether they would mimic their actions at, like they would uh, be at a, a wedding, celebrating and dancing and playing music. Or where they were at a funeral, crying and mourning and weeping and playing a dirge. And so they would say, alright, we're, we're, we're playing funeral. We're playing wedding. And Jesus said, you're like those kids that don't want to play. That's not the game I want to play. You didn't like John the Baptist. He came. He lived lived separated lifestyle. And you just, you, you said he was a demon. I come not living the life of a Nazarite, not living the ascetic life, not living out in the desert, integrating myself into the, the culture, enjoying the food and drink of, of the day, and you call me a glutton and a wet wine-bibber, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. You will not be pleased. You will not be pleased by the, the, the methodology, nor the manner, nor the message of the one sent from God. You will not be pleased by the manner. You call one of them a drunkard, one of them is a demon. You don't, you, don't, you don't appreciate his method. One is separated and one is integrated. And you sure as heck don't like his message because we both came proclaiming what? Repent. Repent. And so Jesus sums it up by saying that, that wisdom is essentially proven true by the fact that it works deeply upon those whom God has chosen to work His Spirit deeply into their hearts, and they believe, and they embrace the truth, and they recognize the truth, and they recognize the truth bearer. And so, we find in these three episodes, we find an unusual faith, faith that wouldn't think about finding it, finding it among the Gentiles. We find... This unrivaled power, 
Jesus raised the dead, not dependent on anybody else. In fact, unlike the prophets and the apostles, Jesus doesn't pray, he just speaks to the dead man. Just speaks to that dead. Get up. Time to get up. And then we see this unexpected doubt. Because what? Life simply hadn't turned out like John the Baptist had expected it to be. The Messiah wasn't exact, didn't exactly look like he thought he should. The kingdom the Messiah was preaching about and ushering in didn't look exactly like he thought about. The citizens of the kingdom, was not, or they were not enjoying the privileges that he had thought about. And so, Luke presents Jesus as indeed one who has power, has authority. He is the Savior. He presents, reminds us that John the Baptist, even this great man, went through a, a season of doubt because life was difficult and life wasn't exactly what he had hoped it would be. Reminds me of us. How many times have I said in these last few months, I've never seen anything like it. But let me tell you this. God is still absolutely on the throne. Jesus Christ absolutely rules and reigns. He is the one. And I believe Josh read this last week, but I thought it, this would be a fitting way to close out uh, this sermon from the book, of Habakkuk. It seems appropriate. Chapter 1, verse 5, Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if I told you. God is at work. We may not like the way it's going, but God is at work. When quizzed about it, God said to Habakkuk, describing the oppressors, Behold, his soul is puffed up, it's not upright within him. But, the righteous shall live by faith. Not by our understanding, not by our ability to figure it out, not by our ability to align ourselves with the correct politicians. We live by faith. And then our resolve is as Habakkuk closes out this book. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord, I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Even though COVID is running wild, even though the, the races are hating each other, e even though the economy is sinking, even, even though my health is failing, I will take my joy in the God of my salvation because He is unchanging. He has done His work for me. He is doing His work in me. And it will be completed in me and for me. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer. He makes me tread on my high places. That is our resolve. I was telling the deacons this morning, I don't know. A lot of things I don't know. Thank God, I know what I know. I know what I know. I know Him in whom I have believed. And I'm convinced He is able to guard that which I've entrusted to Him until that day.
pray with me. Father, we thank you for your word. It is a powerful word. Lord, this word that was proclaimed today has the same power as the word spoken to the dead man. It is your word. And so, God, you bring life where there's death. You bring hope where there's hopelessness. You bring confidence where there's uncertainty. Oh, God, how we confess. We are dependent on you. But, God, you are always faithful. May we be found with our resolve and our hope placed squarely upon you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.